You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. You know who had a really good weekend? Mistress Marley. She's a pro-dom in New York City, and she starred in a trends piece in the New York Times, published on Sunday. The lead, the opening scenes of the story, the first few paragraphs, the lead was about a trip to Mexico that Mistress Marley took with some of her friends, a trip entirely paid for by Mistress Marley's fin subs. Her subs poured money into her cash app account when, well, when she ordered them to, is the obvious phrase to insert here, but when she invited them to would probably be more accurate. Because no one has to send Mistress Marley money when she orders them to. It's just that some men out there, her fin subs, like sending her money when she orders them to or pretends to order them to. And I can only imagine that more money from new clients, from new fin subs, has been pouring into Mistress Marley's checking account since Alexandra Weiss's story ran in the style section this weekend. Findom, which we've talked about on the show a lot, but hasn't been talked about in the New York Times much. Findom, Weiss explains to New York Times readers, quote, is a form of BDSM that has flourished during the pandemic when many sex workers and their customers have migrated online because of social distancing precautions. You know, you don't have to look around the internet for very long to find videos of Findoms marching fin subs to ATMs and ordering the sub to hand over as much cash as they can withdraw. So it is a kind of professional domination that can be done in person and sometimes is, but it does mostly seem to take place online. You can easily fall down a rabbit hole on Twitter. There seem to be a limitless number of actual and aspiring findoms on Twitter. And online interactions are all that many fin subs are interested in. So this removed, this distance, yeah, findom was definitely a safe form of dom sub play during the pandemic. And I imagine a lot of people who were tempted to explore Findom before the pandemic as either doms or subs gave it a try during the pandemic. Weiss doesn't get into the origins of Findom too much. I have my theories. Twitter came into our lives in 2006. The financial crisis hit two years later. And then suddenly it seemed like our political conversation was entirely dominated by discussions of economic inequality. And I think it was the confluence of all those things playing off each other that led to this kink thing taking off. Our erotic imaginations have a way of processing traumatic cultural events and even traumas and turning them into kinks. Not for all of us, but for a significant enough segment of the population that a new kink can take root and take off. A new kink that, like all kinks, riffs on long-established kinks because at the bottom of almost all kinks – you find power. It's just the ways we use power or relate to power or are made to feel powerful or powerless are constantly shifting. And our erotic imaginations, I think, are a kind of lagging indicator. Financial crisis in 2008, FinDom starts to take off in 2010. In 2011, makes the New York Times style section. What I was most impressed by reading this piece in the New York Times over the weekend was seeing the New York Times do what we have been begging reporters at mainstream publications to do for decades. If you're going to write about sex work, talk to sex workers. Not lawmakers, not cops, 
not prosecutors, sex workers, and their clients. Talk to them too, which is what the New York Times did in this case. And what Weiss found doing her reporting and what she relayed to her readers was that this is a job, a job that Mistress Marley enjoys and is good at, and it's a service her clients enjoy and even benefit from emotionally and psychologically. Some people are no doubt going to argue or have been arguing since the piece came out that the picture the story paints is too rosy. And yeah, there are certainly some unscrupulous findoms out there, but there are unscrupulous lawyers and contractors and doctors out there too. And we don't fill every story about the law or home remodels or healthcare with horror stories about the unscrupulous people you can find in those fields. And why not? Well, because most people, all people regard these fields as work, as legitimate work, and that's not the case, not yet, with sex work. So it was refreshing to read a story about a niche kind of sex work that centered, as the kids like to say, that centered the voices of sex workers and their clients instead of the voices of cops and prosecutors and religious anti-sex activists, people who profit from the prohibition of sex work. People who argue that sex work should be illegal because it's dangerous, but refuse to see that sex work is dangerous because it's illegal. Well done, New York Times. Well done, Alexandra Weiss. And good for you, Mistress Marley. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast and on the Savage Lovecast Magnum edition that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. More calls, more questions, more guests, no ads on the Magnum. Go to savagelovecast.com to subscribe today. On the Magnum, I chat with Justin Randall, comedian, actor, co-host of the We Were Christian Kids podcast and the hottest man in Omaha. All that coming up on today's show. Dear Dan, I'm a 40-year-old gay man from Germany. My boyfriend of 11-year husband since two years is American, so that's how I know your show. And I have a quarantine success story to share. Like a few days ago, I came home from work. I'm a doctor, so I came home late and everything was really <laughs> shit. And then I took a shower and we went to bed together. And I was somehow horny as fuck and so was my husband. And we were just laying there naked next to each other. He came on top of me and we were just rubbing our naked bodies against each other, got hard. And somehow, like after a few minutes of this very intense rubbing, I just came all over my body and he kept rubbing his body against mine. And so I was there all covered in cum and I had one of the best orgasms in years. And so unexpectedly, you know, when I was laying there all naked and all covered in cum, I thought, yeah, you can be mad at a lot of things right now, but it's hard to stay mad when you are covered in cum. And so I thought things are getting better. And you know, we will get through this all together, this whole COVID thing. And I'm actually looking forward to everything. So everyone out there, stay safe, stay sane, and always look at your partner right after you took a shower. Me? Sometimes I remember why I'm mad at somebody just as soon as I'm covered in their cum or my cum. But individual results may vary. Glad it worked for you, caller. Glad it was a sex success story for you. We like to begin each week's show with a sexual success story before we get to everybody's sex and relationship problems. If you've got one and you'd like us to open next week's Savage Lovecast with your success story, give us a buzz, share, and you might hear your success story next week. Howdy. I, uh, 
we recently ran into a uh, a friend, maybe someone that I just followed on Instagram that I had a crush on. I knew she would be at a fucking club, and I was there. She came in, and as soon as I saw her, I chased her into the bar, offered to buy her a drink. She didn't remember who I was, showed her my ID. We were wearing face masks through to the COVID, and it was all cool. We got the thing. She went and did her thing for a minute, came back, found me a table. We had a couple cool fucking interactions and fun interest things and then she left me and my heart was beating the whole time i don't know if it's the one but we'll see well let me know what you think welcome to listener if you're a regular listener if you were a long-time listener you would know how i feel or what i think about the whole concept of the one. There is no one out there. There's a lot of 0.67s and 0.78s and the occasional 0.82 or even 0.83. And it's your job to find one of those people, one of those many 0.64s, rare 0.78s, even rarer still 0.82s, and then round that motherfucker up to the one. There is no the one. The one is a compliment that we pay someone. We treat them like the one. They treat us like the one. And somehow, in the being treated like the one, we become a little bit closer to being the one. The more you treat that 0.64 like the one, the more they become a 0.78. So that's how I feel about the one. Obviously, I don't think that this girl that you kind of stalked into this bar, sounds like you were checking her out on Instagram and figured out where she would be and when she would be there. So you didn't just run into her. You were trying to make your luck happen. That's fine. People do that all the time, particularly on social media, with social media. Sometimes people before social media used to go to bars and see somebody and then go back to that bar at that same time hoping to run into that person again. It's not something necessarily super new and super creepy, even though online stalking does kind of make people feel uncomfortable when they contemplate it. And it does seem like that's kind of what you're doing and I'm a little uncomfortable endorsing it. Anyway, is this woman the one? No. The woman didn't recognize you, ran off, Uh, After accepting the drink from you to do her own thing, I imagine she was taking some swings through the bar to check out the other talent on offer that night and then left without you. Odds that she feels the same way about you, that she's endowed you with the same hopes that you've endowed her with, are very slim. I can't rule them out. Still within the realm of possibility, maybe you'll run into her again, and that night she was looking for somebody that she had stalked on Instagram who was supposed to be in that bar, and she really couldn't take you in because she was on the hunt for the person she was stalking on the internet, and maybe you'll run into her again, and maybe you'll run into her again without face masks, and you won't have to produce ID for her to recognize you. I can recognize people that I know with face masks on. Generally, I don't need to card my friends We're lovers to make sure it's them, despite the face masks we're all meeting up wearing. Anyway, maybe you'll run into her again. She'll recognize you, and she will no longer be pursuing the one she thought was the one because that one wasn't interested in her in the same way that she, at least at this moment, isn't interested in you. Don't wait. 
Obviously, it didn't happen that night. It is your job to move on from the events of that night with the assumption that it ain't going to happen and put yourself out there, get on Tinder, get on other apps, get off Instagram, don't stalk people on Instagram, get on the apps where people are putting themselves forward and inviting contact from strangers and see if something doesn't happen with somebody else. But if you run into her again, go ahead, say hello. If she has to card you again to remember who the fuck you are, obviously you're not in the running for her to round up to the one. And I don't want to bag on you too hard. People, you know, they got to put themselves out there. They've got to take the risk. They've got to ask somebody to buy them a drink uh, to make that first contact. And without anyone making that effort, nothing ever happens. So good on you. But you don't want to try to make a guess about who was or wasn't quote unquote, the one when you're drunk or when you're drunk and you've just struck out, which kind of sounds like what happened that night was you struck out and you called me while you were still drunk. So uh, your judgment on what did or didn't happen that night or what may or may not be possible in the future based on what did or didn't happen that night might not be the best at this particular moment while you're still drunk rethink this when you're sober and maybe the next time you meet up with her or run into her, please don't stalk her, stay sober and use your best judgment, your non-impaired judgment, and then make an assessment about whether there's any mutual attraction or mutual interest. Based on what's already transpired, I'd say it's a long shot, most likely not mutual interest, mutual desire. But you never know. Can't rule it out. The world is full of people who are partnered with people who the first time they met didn't even consider them, overlooked them. And then the next time they met, they sparked. So could still be possible, but don't wait around for that to happen. Put yourself out there. Meet some other people on some apps and websites where people are asking to be met. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a heterosis male in my late 20s living in Alaska, and I was wondering if you or your listeners had heard or experienced any effects on libido from the COVID vaccines. Specifically, speaking with my friends, we who have had the Pfizer vaccine have had a strong sexual response to both injections. One friend reported she had 10 orgasms in one session after the first injection. For myself, I noticed that aside from the usual sore arm and fatigue, my usually low libido had skyrocketed. When I orgasmed the day after the second dose, it was the strongest orgasm I have had in a long time, and my refractory period was much shorter than normal. So my question is, are these effects legit, or is it just a happy coincidence for me and my Pfizer-vaccinated friends? It's true. I don't know why we didn't, this isn't on the cover of the New York Times. Yes, COVID-19 vaccines make you multi-orgasmic, spike your libido, they make your dick bigger, they make your cum sweeter, they wire your tits and you don't have to clean out before anal. It's a miracle. Everyone should get vaccinated just for these sexual side effects. Should be splashed across the front of the New York Times. They should be talking about it from the podium in the White House briefing room. All right, caller, I actually haven't heard about this anywhere else or from anyone else, but Yahtzee, that's great. I'm so glad that you and your friends had what were probably coincidental experiences where shortly after you got vaccinated, you had some libido spikes that you've attributed to the vaccine. That's awesome. Probably not a side effect. I think if this was legitimately a side effect, Anthony Fauci would be talking about it 
on cable news programs 24 hours a day because it would prompt everyone out there to get vaccinated. The much more common experience after vaccination, I got vaccinated. I was knocked out for three days, couldn't get out of bed for a day as the antibodies kicked into gear, as my body began to fight off what it thought was a COVID-19 infection, but was just the vaccine fooling my body into fighting it off so that I would be safer when I encountered the actual virus out there in the wild. And I didn't have multiple orgasms. My dick didn't get any bigger. My tits didn't get any more wired than they already are. But I'm still glad I got vaccinated. And everybody should get vaccinated. And hey, if it helps, maybe, maybe this is just an undocumented side effect. And soon we will know that multiple orgasms are something that happens to people who get vaccinated. Just like we eventually figured out that we did indeed need to wear masks. So we can't rule this out. Might as well err on the side of getting vaccinated just in case you'll get multiple orgasms in the deal. Hi, Dan. 33-year-old white female pan. I am a PhD student currently enrolled in a pretty prestigious program, genomics. And, you know, I really, I really want to teach and do research at a, at a university. I want to be a mentor to students that uh, are, are looking to be mentored, essentially. And the thing is, I feel like I am sort of a non-traditional woman who is pursuing a career in academia, meaning that I have an OnlyFans, and I started this OnlyFans kind of towards the middle of the pandemic, as a lot of people have, and at first I was really ashamed of it, because I had always been taught that women in academia, going into STEM or whatever... Essentially, you have to pick and choose between do you, do you want your brains to show or do you want people to know you for your body? And so it was kind of thrown up in the air at me that like, well, you know, you can't let people see that you're sexy. Well, when I started the OnlyFans and I tried to keep it a secret, another colleague of mine found out about my OnlyFans and that turned into a pretty big uh, to do. He essentially got kicked out of the program because he tried to blackmail me and and such with my OnlyFans, but I've learned to feel very empowered by my OnlyFans. And now that more people are learning about it, it's sort of been something that my partner and I even, you know, it kind of helps us sexually. We're in a long distance relationship and, you know, he gets excited when he logs onto my OnlyFans and sees what I'm doing on there. But I guess my question to you is, what's your opinion on women who are pursuing pretty professional role, career roles, also being a sex worker, essentially. You know, me, I, I feel like, you know, women should fight for it and, you know, they should be able to express themselves however. But I don't know. I kind of wanted to get your opinion on on the matter of having an OnlyFans and being a sex worker despite wanting to go into academia. Well, my opinion is that it should be no barrier that someone has done or is doing sex work, sex work as their main gig or sex work as a side hustle should be no barrier to any other passion or career or profession that they want to pursue. The problem is that my opinion doesn't rule the world as much as I would like my opinions to rule the world. And there are lots of examples out there, mostly of people who stopped doing sex work, mostly of people who did porn for a while or did sex work for a while and then went into some other line of work, often working with children, who then got into trouble when parents found out that their kid's homeroom teacher 
or even high school math teacher, and in some cases, college educator, had a past in porn and a lot of sex negative, porn negative assholes out there want people to stop doing porn and to get out of sex work, but then want to make sure that anybody who exits porn or exits sex work can't do anything else. I guess they think they're just supposed to curl up on the floor and die when they stop doing sex work if they don't support them going into some other line of work, particularly teaching. Anyway, I don't think it should be a barrier. You may encounter barriers because other people do think it's a barrier. The world is changing, though. You know, a lot of the stories that leap instantly to my mind when I get questions like yours from people who are doing kind of sex work and worrying about whether it's going to screw up their professional lives down the road. A lot of the stories that leap to mind are 10 years old, 15 years old, even 20 years old and up. I think we're undergoing a kind of cultural shift about sex work, also about online evidence because everybody, not everybody's doing sex work, but everybody is swapping dirty pictures of themselves on the internet and everybody's kids, even if the adults aren't doing it and adults are doing it and adults do it. Actually studies have found at just as high a rate as the youngsters we're all supposed to be worried about all the time do it. Everybody for the most part, almost everybody is swapping dirty photos and videos online is flirting uh, online with, you know, people they intend to be in romantic relationships with, or they're just showing off and it's sort of like the dirt on all of us is out there. So if we create a cultural norm or standard that when that dirt surfaces or somebody, you know, engages in revenge pornography campaigns against a person, you know, it could happen to you next. There but for the grace of God, go you. So you don't want the cultural norm to be that if someone's photos are surfaced and sent to all their colleagues at the university, that their career is over you don't want to support that cultural norm because even if it's not your picture circulating at this moment, you could be next because your photos are out there and you're one angry, vindictive, vengeful ex away from the same fate. And so we all want to de-escalate here. It's kind of a mad situation. Mutual assured destruction. My pictures are out there somewhere. Your pictures are out there somewhere. Can't we all agree that having pictures out there somewhere – whether we were just flirting or swapping dirty videos and images with somebody we were romantically involved with or whether we were doing OnlyFans for a little while in a period of our lives where we needed that kind of work and support. And a lot of people turn to that kind of sex work during the pandemic. If it's all out there, let's all agree. Let's all join hands and agree that this should end no one's career. That's the world I've always wanted to live in. And increasingly, I think that is the world – I do live in, and more and more of us do live in, but not all of us live in that world. If you want to go teach at Brigham Young University, if, if that's the university that offers you a job or Wheaton College or Boston University, it could be a problem for you. Your students, the people you're mentoring, or your colleagues find these photos. I think it'll be less of a problem at more progressive institutions and less religious institutions. So you might want to Hone your job search with, you know, an eye over your shoulder on what you were doing in the past before you land that first teaching gig in academia. I don't think you have anything to be ashamed about, you know, riffing on that Eleanor Roosevelt quote, no one can make you feel ashamed without your consent and you shouldn't consent to being or feeling shamed. My hesitancy in telling you, you know, what my opinion is, is if my opinion is prescriptive, is that not everyone currently holds my opinion. 
shares my opinion on this, nor will everyone at some point all hold my opinion on this. And you could face career bumps because of it, but you've already done it. And so what's done is done. And you're going to face those career bumps, whether you stop now or don't stop now. So I'd encourage you not to stop, to do what you feel good about, do what you feel safe doing, do what you enjoy. You clearly enjoy this little side hustle. And then don't apply Wheaton College or BYU or Boston College. Good luck. Hey, Dan. So there is this guy that I fucked a couple months ago, and he's fucking gorgeous, like Magic Mike type buff dude, amazing. But we only fucked the one time. And ever since then, he has posted a lot of things on his Snapchat about how masks are stupid. And if you believe in masks, you're pathetic and like a bunch of anti-mask stuff. So I kind of engaged him in a conversation on Snapchat, just trying to gauge what his like beliefs are. And pretty much he just like spewed some right-wing bullshit at me saying that the CDC says that masks only work 1% of the time. And the fact that I believe that masks work is makes me like a science denier just like completely backward logic but anyway so obviously i'm not going to like fuck him even though i would love to because he's super fucking hot but like this level of idiocracy is just mind-blowing so i just want to know what you would do would you engage him some more try to get him like like come at him with a really logical argument would you fuck him again would you just block him just let me know what would i do in this situation well, in the pandemic situation, I wouldn't be fucking brand new randos. No shame, not heaping shame up on you, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you asked me what I would do. I wouldn't in the first place have fucked some brand new rando, however hot he might be, however magic Mike he might be, however buff he might be in the middle of a pandemic. Presumably he wasn't wearing a mask considering how he feels about masks when you met him or when you fucked him. That's the... Advice we've gotten from public health officials around meeting up during a pandemic with people you haven't fucked before is you should keep your masks on, eat ass, don't suck face. Presumably this anti-mask idiot wasn't wearing a mask when you hooked up with him and neither were you. Hopefully you both emerged from that encounter unscathed. But that's my first answer to the what would I do question. In the first place, I wouldn't have fucked this brand new maskless rando. If you want to argue with him, the CDC that he's citing in error has an entire page on the evidence for the effectiveness of mask wearing during this pandemic. And you could send him that link, but you can't be in the room with this guy without risking your own health and safety. You know this guy is taking unreasonable risks in the middle of this pandemic. A lot of people who are anti-mask are also idiotically they're idiotically anti-mask and the idiocy extends to being anti-vax, anti-vaccines. So he's probably not vaccinated or going to get vaccinated. And so you don't want to be alone in a room with him. I wouldn't know. You didn't ask me what you should do. You asked me what I would do. I wouldn't want to make the mistake of being alone in a room with this guy again, however hot he might be, however good the sex might be. There are other gorgeous, buff, hot, magic mic types out there who will wear masks who do wear masks, who aren't right-wing conspiracy theorists, pickle-brained idiots like this guy is. So what would I do? I would not fuck this guy. Well, I wouldn't have fucked this guy in the first place, but I certainly wouldn't fuck this guy again. Some people you can fuck some sense into. Other people you can't. 
doesn't sound like this guy is someone you or I could fuck any sense into. Hey, Dan, I am calling for advice from my mother, actually. Something pretty weird happened to her yesterday. She got an email that basically said that I have your password. It listed her password in the subject line, like commonly used passwords on different sites, I guess, and said that um, we have footage of you watching porn and we will release it unless you send Bitcoin money. And we'll send it to all of your contacts. And obviously, she freaked out. And she disclosed it to me. And I don't want to think too much about my mom watching porn, but I know that's a standard thing for most people. And that's okay. I was supportive. And I just tried to tell her that, first of all, maybe she should submit a police report just to be on record. I suggested maybe she gets ahead of it, like, and just tells people, hey, if you receive a link to something like this, then, you know, please don't open it. Respect my privacy. And I'm just not really sure what else to tell her to, like, calm her nerves, because for right now, she's just like, it's a waiting game where she looked up an article that said that this was a scam. So don't, you know, obviously don't pay it. She's not going to. But if something like this gets out it's just super super embarrassing i mean she has work contacts she was just let go from one job just being laid off and is might be searching again for another job in the same industry and it's really embarrassing and she doesn't know how to process it and i'm not sure how to help her what else to say have you heard of this i remember the first time i got that email the exact same email that's your mother got. And I wish I could say that I was just like, oh gosh, this is total bullshit. What a scam. But I had a, a moment's panic. And then two things occurred to me. They hadn't enclosed a screen grab. If somebody had an incriminating video and they wanted to make sure that you paid up so that they didn't send that incriminating video to everyone in your contacts that they claim to have downloaded from your computer, they would send a screen grab. They would send proof, just like in the hostage situation in olden times. They would send you a picture of the relative they'd kidnapped with today's newspapers that you know they were still alive and you would pay up. And there was no screen grab. And I thought, well, that's weird. And then I remembered that I don't really watch much internet pornography. I'm very much like a lot of women out there. I prefer when I do consume pornography. I like erotica. I like dirty stories. I like to read, not watch. There are places I don't think that you should point a hot light and a camera at. <laughs> it is sexy to, to, to look as I do to imagine. And so what would this blackmailer have? A video of my eyes slowly going back and forth across the text? Like what would they have on me? Anyway, that email kept coming. I never paid up that first time, and the email kept coming and coming and coming. I've gotten it hundreds of times. It is a scam. The FTC uses the information it gets from people who report scams to keep close watch on trends. And the big trend now is emails say they've hacked into your computer and recorded you visiting adult websites. So it is bullshit, and the FTC says it's bullshit, and I say it's bullshit, and you can tell your mom that I never paid up and no one ever sent a video of me sitting in my living room quietly reading erotica on the internet in the middle of the night. And she doesn't need to worry. She just needs to delete that email and brace herself for more like it because they're coming. Hi, Dan. 
I am a 29-year-old frustrated bisexual female, and I wanted to ask you about how to handle, I guess, maybe different sexual styles when you're hooking up with someone new, particularly if maybe they're from a different culture, different country, maybe the way they think uh, having sex is acceptable. I met this very attractive guy. You know, we made a, a decent connection online, at least, before meeting up. And, you know, he seemed nice enough. And the only problem was when we actually got to the bedroom, he was very aggressive sexually and really did not take the time at all to make sure my needs were met at all. I tried asking him about, did he ever go down on women? Was that something he did? And he replied sometimes. And then immediately asked if, uh, you know, I would give him head basically and kind of, and I said, yes, sure. Sometimes, you know, I'm all GGG. And basically like kind of was forcefully face fucking me. And that's not really something that I'm a huge fan of. And, you know, just the way that how he kind of treated me while I was trying to give him head was not really something I was into or super comfortable with, you know, kind of forcing me to go further than I could do, you know, gagging, whatever. It just was a really great experience. And especially actually having uh, penetrative sex, it really didn't do much for me. You know, it just really felt like a masturbatory thing for him. And it was just really unsatisfying. And I don't know if I'm really going to see this guy again. If I do, do you have any suggestions? How can I talk to him about it without him maybe taking it too personal? I am just so over it that there are some guys out there that think it's okay to treat uh, their partner like this or just a new sexual partner in general to just wham bam thank you ma'am i just don't think it's okay i agree with you it's not okay that there are some people out there who think it's okay to take their pleasure from someone else without any regard for that other person's pleasure i don't want to say that it's never okay to face fuck someone i am dan savage i speak for the face fuckies some people really like to have their faces fucked like that. They like to give a blowjob like that or have a blowjob taken from them like that. You don't. And you say it's not okay that some guys think that they can just do that. And I'm curious after listening to your call twice, whether he knows what you think or whether you told him what you thought in the moment. And it doesn't sound like you did. I'm not saying that he didn't behave in a selfish and inconsiderate way. That kind of blowjob until someone is gagging is not something the person whose dick is being sucked initiates without at least inquiring, without asking. It seems to me you don't even have to ask. Somebody who likes their face fucked like that is going to shove your dick down their own throat if that's the kind of blowjob they enjoy giving. So – Face fucking, yeah, the face fucker doesn't initiate that. The face fucky kind of initiates that particular style of blowjob. And it was inconsiderate of him 
to just start fucking your face when you went down on him, when he asked you to go down on him, after you asked him if he would go down on you and he immediately pivoted to you, why don't you go down on me? That was the first tell that he was a selfish and considerate lousy lay. You asked him to eat your pussy and he said, how about you suck my dick instead? And then when it went to PIV, he fucked your pussy like he fucked your throat. Selfishly, without taking your pleasure into consideration, without asking for your opinion or your input or being at all solicitous. And he doesn't get a pass for that because he's from a different culture. There are plenty of people from whatever culture you're from, whatever culture I'm from, from every culture who are lousy, inconsiderate, selfish, sexist lays. He's one of them. I think your impulse to never see this guy again is the correct impulse. Do not see this guy again. The way he had sex with you communicated basically everything that you need to know about this person. You're not safe in a room with him. He's not a conscientious lover. There may be a way that he likes to have his dick sucked. There are people out there who would probably like to suck his dick in just that way. He needs to go out of his way to make sure that his dick is being sucked in that way by those people who enjoy sucking his dick in that way and that he didn't, that he just went for it is an indication that he doesn't care how his sex partners feel about the sex that he is having, I guess, not with them, but at them. Or he isn't aware that he's supposed to care. Avoid that guy. In the moment, next time, if you find yourself in this situation again, and unlike some women who find themselves in this situation, you feel safe speaking up and saying no and saying stop and saying I don't like it like this, say those things. Sometimes women find themselves in a sexual circumstance with a man where they fear saying no because they worry this guy who's already being kind of violent with them, having a kind of violent sex with them, may escalate, may retaliate or being criticized or being asked to do things a little bit differently. But if you feel safe in the moment saying, no, I don't like this, you can pull the ripcord. You can stop. You can take the dick out of your mouth. There are times when people are having sex that they don't enjoy and they don't speak up. They don't give their partner feedback in the moment because they've invested too much or they're overly invested in their partner's pleasure maybe because they've been socialized as women to defer to their partner, to, to, you know, to prioritize their partner's pleasure and prioritize their part, protecting their partner's ego. And I think that might've been the case for you. If you know, you ask yourself, honestly, if you could have said something in the moment and, and, and felt safe, like he wasn't going to get more violent, I guess, than he was already being, and you didn't say something in the moment. I wonder if that's not because, well, as you said, you were worried, worried now about giving him feedback because you worry, you know, quoting you, you worry about giving him feedback for fear that he might take it too personally. That is you prioritizing his ego, his comfort, his pleasure over your own physical safety, your own pleasure. You're worried about his feelings, you hurting his feelings by telling him, now, what you didn't tell him in the moment then, which was that you did not enjoy this, that it wasn't good for you, that you went along with sex that was uncomfortable and unpleasant, even painful, to spare him, to let him. Because in that moment, his pleasure mattered more than your pleasure. And you were so concerned, even still so concerned about giving him feedback that might hurt his precious feelings, that you endured this terrible encounter without complaint. Seems to me that you might want to complain. 
You say he's hot. You wouldn't have called if you weren't tempted to hook up with him again. If you hook up with him again, if you meet up with him again, you need to carpet bomb his ego. You need to ask him if this is how he always has sex because this is not sex that you enjoyed and that you were reluctant to meet up with him again because you don't want to have sex like that with him or anyone else ever again and see how he reacts. If he reacts defensively, if he gets angry, get the fuck out of there. Maybe he'll be mortified. I kind of doubt it, but maybe, maybe he's been flying along like this and no one's ever challenged him. Maybe he thinks because he's watched so much porn that this is how all women like it. And this is the way you do it. And he was doing it that way because he thought that was what was expected of him because it gave him pleasure. But he also thought because he's been conditioned to think that this is what would give his female partner pleasure also. You could be the rude awakening that he needs, but you can't be that rude awakening without being or risking being or seeming rude. I wouldn't have this conversation with him in person. I would have this conversation with him via text. I would have this conversation with him on the phone. If that's something people your age are still doing, getting on the phone. I wouldn't get in a room with him to have this conversation. Get him on the phone. Ask him some questions. Give him some blunt fucking feedback from a safe distance. Engage his reaction, and then with the information you glean from that conversation, you can make an informed decision about whether it's worth it to risk getting in a room with this guy again. But I have a bias here. I think that when a woman asks a man to go down on her and his response is, suck my dick, that that should be the end. You should have left then, which is not to blame you for this unpleasant experience. The way women are socialized, a lot of women wind up having the kind of awful sexual experience that you had. The culture sets you up for this for this kind of violation, and you were violated. The only question is whether he knows that's what he was doing. Odds are he does, which means you shouldn't see him again. There's a slim chance that he doesn't know that, doesn't realize it. That call from you could be the wake-up call that he needs. Hi, Dan. I'm calling a question in regards to um, myself and my husband. Date women and invite them into our relationship. I am bisexual, but we are not poly in that we don't date separately and we're not swingers because we're not looking for other couples. We are merely dating other women for both of us. And I'm just wondering, what is the term for that? Poly is actually the term for that. Poly is the term you're looking for, polyam or polyamorous. You and your husband date other women together. You're the unicorn hunter variety of poly, but you two together are open, not just to having sex with another person. It's not just an open relationship. You just don't play together and have three ways with other people who then you don't see again or don't form long-term bonds with. You're open to dating other people. That's polyamory, more than one romantic and sexual relationship at a time. And the kind of polyamory you're practicing is really common. There's lots of couples involved in polyamory who don't date individually, don't have other partners, only have partners together that they share, often just one at a time. It's a kind of polyamory, polyamory, polyamorous. Those are the labels you've been looking for. You know, when it comes to monogamy, most people understand what you mean. Monogamy, just having sex with one other person. Often monogamy means you're just not having sex with one other person. But everyone understands what monogamy means. 
A lot of people have very different and elastic ideas of what cheating means in the context of a monogamous relationship. And it's important for people in monogamous relationships to be on the same page about what defines cheating. But when it comes to non-monogamy, oh, it can mean many different types of things. It can be a DADT agreement, don't ask, don't tell. It can be one person sometimes has sex with other people with the, their partner's consent. It can be they only have three ways together. They only play together. Non-monogamy can be swinging. Non-monogamy can also be polyamory. And polyamory has many different iterations. But still, you fall under the polyamorous umbrella, what you and your husband are doing. And I think that you should embrace that label. Please don't invent a new one. We are labeled up. We have all the labels we need to get us through the next two or 3,000 years of human evolution. Hey, faggot. And that makes two of us. I've lived in Arkansas and Oklahoma my entire life because that's just where it's been frittered away. Raised by good Pentecostal Christians who taught me about the history of World War II and now vote fascist. If anyone was built for conformity, along with my two youth pastor brothers, it's me. I, however, am one of those guys that was always low-key out to everyone except myself until about 14. Then I tried to fight it back for eight years. I got expelled from Bible college at 21, and I finally left the whole concept of the divine, got a job, a place. I desperately hoped my own life. And since then, I've either been invisible or fabulous to one person slash fact, faction or another. I also had an unfortunate pattern with dating. I'd either be ignored or someone would find me amazing, come on hard, and last long enough for me to believe it, usually a week and then disappear within two. It's always, you're great, you're too much. I've been out for 16 years now, and the only meaningful or lengthy relationships have been rebounds for them. Recently, I've met this guy who genuinely seems to be into me and communication and my body of all things, and it feels cinematic until one visit, he practically runs out the door, and I get a text later. I don't want to change you, but I can't handle your feminine energy. This is the summation of it. And then completely silence for a week. He's back and talking and making plans again now, but I feel that pattern again, and I'm waiting for the bubble to burst more than it already has. Do I stay and work it out with potential that essentially called me a fag and ghosted, but who loves my ass? Or be alone for another five to eight years waiting for someone to see all of me and say, perfect. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Justin Randall, comedian, actor, and co-host with Calvin Arsenia of the We Were Christian Kids podcast. Hey, Justin, how are you? Hey, I am good. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you uh, for jumping on the phone. Before we get to the call... Uh, so your podcast, We Were Christian Kids, it's basically a show where you and your co-hosts complain endlessly about your childhoods week after week. Complain, complain, complain. How long do you think you can keep it up? You know, that's a good question. I think we're thinking the same thing. But what we are learning is that as people write in and call in, there are so many people who like have shared experiences that hit so close to home that it makes us want to keep doing it because we feel like it's 
sort of touching people where they are. You're only 18 episodes in a baby podcast, and and I'm a fan. I'm sorry, I'm nagging you. I'm obviously like internet flirting <laughs> with you there because uh, right. the podcast is terrific and it's quickly built up a huge following. Were you surprised by the response? Yeah, we really were. You know, we sort of just decided to start it on a whim because we spend a lot of time talking about how incredibly Christian we were and how intensely into God we were. And that compared to where we are now as like queer adults sort of wrestling with spirituality. So we were like, let's just talk about this and put it out there. And the response has definitely been surprising. Yeah, we have a lot of people, um, like I said, writing in, calling in, and we're, we're grateful for the listeners. <laughs> so this caller, uh, whose question we're about to tackle, raised Pentecostal, youth minister, siblings. What was your background like? What, what particular brand of crazy were you raised in? I was raised non-denominational Protestant, very conservative, no drinking, no premarital sex. The world was created in seven days. And my parents really drilled it into us at home as well. It wasn't just at church. But in high school, I willingly got into the Pentecostal scene. So I was out there speaking in tongues and, you know, doing healings with the Holy Spirit. So I kind of have dabbled in multiple realms. But yeah, I went all in. My parents were evangelical Catholics. I was at prayer meetings where people spoke in tongues who were Catholics. It's not a thing that's associated with Catholicism, but there was a lot of sort of Pentecostal adjacent shit going on in Catholic church basements Ooh. in the 70s when I was growing up. It's surprising to see how that mainstream, at least in Christian circles, that kind of snake handling bullshit has become. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's yeah. spiritual advisor would speak in tongues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which didn't phase me. But even my parents, like that was, they were outside of that circle. So, you know, when you're outside of the circle looking in, it can be very jarring and scary. But once you're exposed to it. How did you get away? I got away largely by going to college. Honestly, (gasps) I, I remember I took my first astronomy course and learned about how big the universe was and like was immediately rattled. And um, it was just moving away from, I think, the bubble that I was in that gave me the ability to look into new perspectives. And then, you know, years of therapy was was how I actually stripped away of the internalized beliefs and got to the root of it. And you grew up gay in this faith community. Uh, it's funny that you you mentioned going to college and taking an astronomy course and that kind of rattling you because that is the stated fear of so many religious conservatives now that their kids that they've homeschooled and raised in these bubbles will go to college and encounter mm-hmm. something that challenges you know the idea that the universe was created seven minutes ago by God in six days who then took a day off right and, and lose the faith and that's literally what happened to you that's literally your trajectory yep yeah education is sort of viewed as the devil's playground, I think, by a lot of conservatives. And yeah, that I think that's because the truth is there and it worked on me. And then there was Dick. Yes, that uh, that definitely helped pull me away. I always knew that I wanted Dick, but I was just resigned to never having it. And I was dating girls and I was going to die with a secret. 
But New York City came into the picture and all of a sudden I was in Hell's Kitchen at the gay bars and, you know, it was right there in front of me. So I stopped saying no. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this call. Yes. So he's, I mean, it's really not a faith question, uh, but it did give me an excuse to invite you on the podcast. I've wanted to have you on forever. <laughs> so you know, he was raised Pentecostal. He got away from it. And he's just really curious about why, you know, 12 years after coming out or 16 years after coming out, he can't make a relationship last longer than two weeks. Hmm. Yeah. That's a deep question. Honestly, it had me thinking, you know, for many years, I was like seeking out, I think, relationships with people that I knew wouldn't last. And I think um, part of that might have been that I didn't think that they deserved to last. And I wonder how much of that is connected to the teaching of, you know, the church in my childhood. So the church taught you that gay relationships were not just sick and sinful, but fleeting and unstable. And Absolutely. there was some part of you subconsciously that was attempting to confirm that? Yeah, I think definitely. And that I didn't, um, you know, it's kind of that you accept the love you think you deserve thing. I didn't think that I deserved to be loved in that way because I was gay. And um, I've been sort of still unraveling that over the last few years. It, a lot of it ties back to the religious stuff. So he says that there's this pattern of guys saying, I don't want to change you, but I can't handle your feminine energy. Is it just Arkansas that's the problem? Does he need to get the fuck out of Arkansas already? Ooh, that would help. That would help. I got the fuck out of Kansas. So that definitely helped tremendously. But also, I just feel like a guy who says that is is like uh, not worth the time. What's yeah, that? He's telling on himself. Yes, absolutely. And he's got to go. So the guy who just said that to him, I don't want to change you, but I can't handle your feminine energy. He's back and they're dating again after the caller says he basically called me a fag and ghosted. Should he give him his walking paper? Should he give him another chance? I do not think he should give him another chance. I think he already, you know, showed who he was and, you know, there's got to be some sort of hopefully maybe trust in the universe that someone better will come along. That's just my non-clinical advice there i do got to say because i'm i'm the king of like making the asshole point or at least asking callers to consider whether they might be the problem when they call me with their problems mm. out 16 years never had a relationship last more than a week or two that means you're the common denominator in a lot of fleeting relationships i always urge people to you know Check in with a therapist, not going to therapy forever like Woody Allen. Obviously didn't help much, but maybe four or five sessions with a therapist just to check yourself. Maybe it's a coincidence or maybe it's about where you're living, caller, and you know the communities you're embedded in, that you're just meeting guys who aren't ready or capable, may never be capable of, of forming a relationship. Or maybe there's something that you're doing or something that guys are picking up on after a week or two that is – scaring guys off that is a thing that happens and sometimes we need outside perspective before we can identify whatever it is we might be doing that's creating our own problem yeah that makes a lot of sense to me is your whole family still in the church my whole family is still very much entrenched in the church yes in fact they go to the same church how are they with <laughs> you being gay and very very out they are uh, struggling with it 
they really are. And I am very out and on the internet for the whole world to see. And I sometimes get text messages from them saying, can you take this down? Or why would you say that? And it's like a thing that we have to grapple with because I'm still going to make my material and they're still going to be who they are. And considering what they put you through, you have a right to mine them for some of that material. That's my perspective. I'm like, this is my life and my experience and, and honestly, my trauma. So if I want to turn it into a punchline, I'm entitled to. Does your mom follow you on Twitter? She, well, she might covertly. I don't think that she has like a public Twitter, but I suspect that she is snooping around, so, so you, which is only hurting her. So your mom and I have both seen you in your underwear. <laughs> yes. Yes, and thousands of other people. I suspect I've enjoyed your underwear <laughs> pictures more than your mother has. Can we keep you on for another couple questions? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Dan. I'm a cis pansexual woman in my 30s practicing non-monogamy. And something you tweeted the other day really resonated with this internal struggle I'm having. You tweeted, a loving relationship can last one night or it can last a lifetime. I would really love to take that message to heart, especially as I'm practicing non-monogamy. I want to be able to look back on relationships that have ended and appreciate them and, and value those happy memories. But I'm having the hardest time doing that. Over the last year, I've been broken up with twice. One relationship was pre-pandemic and ended in the middle of last year, and then one relationship very carefully and very cautiously started in the pandemic and ended a few weeks ago. It sucks, and it hurts so much. And even the breakup that happened six months ago still hurts. And I don't want my non-monogamy to be just collecting relationship corpses that make me sad. I want to be able to look back at, at these people in my life and smile. And I, I'm just having a hard time doing that. I wonder if, um, because the world is so crazy, maybe what I'm grieving is like the potential that these relationships had. Like we never got to go out to a restaurant or like meet each other's friends. And we wanted to, we talked about that. We wanted to, and then they ended things. So that might be part of it. I've always been more of a long-term relationship kind of person. So that might be part of it too, but I just, I, I don't want it to hurt forever. So I imagine you've had your heart stomped on at least once or twice. I have. Yeah, I've got some heartbreak in my past. Can you help put the caller put that into perspective? Well, one thing I'm learning now is to go into relationships, understanding that they might end um, and thinking about that ahead of time and sort of letting go of this idea of forever. That's what I'm doing currently in my relationship. My boyfriend is a med student, not to brag. Oh so we God. don't know. I know. <laughs> we don't know where he's going to end up in a few years and we've talked about it and it's just like, you know what, this could last a year or it could last two years or longer than that. And so I'm wondering if like going in with that understanding could help on the other side. Of it. I think that would help everyone. If everyone went into every relationship thinking this might, even if you're open to forever, 
the likelihood is that it's not forever and you want to make the best of it, whether it lasts forever or it doesn't last forever. And, right. you know, to the caller, I would say, you know, you don't want non-monogamy to be basically collecting relationship corpses that make you sad. That's not just non-monogamy. That's monogamy too. That's serial monogamy. Mm. So there's nothing about being open or having a non-monogamous relationship uh, that's setting you up for a particular kind of pain that people who are want or are in closed relationships are protected from. We all get dumped. Mm. Yeah. And there's always the thought of what could have been too, but you know, there's, there's like what can still be with, with other people that are crossing your path. That was what I wanted to go next. You should have a relationship advice podcast too, but don't, I don't need any more competition. No, no relationship advice podcast for you, but that's just it. You know, when a relationship ends, you may be sad at that moment. You know, you may grieve for what could have been or what you hoped might be or or might've been, but obviously your hopes were misplaced because the other person didn't want what you wanted or wasn't open to what you wanted. But then when you meet somebody that you can have those things with, you'll be grateful that the person you couldn't dumped you a year ago to free you Mm. up for the person that you're with now whether that lasts forever or not. Hmm. 100%. I mean, it's just a, it, yeah. it's a Zen mind trick that you have to play on yourself when, when relationships end. Yeah, this is sad and I'm bummed and this person's out of my life and I'm missing this and I'm missing that. But now I have, particularly if you're not monogamous, more room and more space in my life for a new partner or partners and opportunity that I didn't have before. Yeah. And it's not about somebody... Freedom and space. Yeah, and it's not about somebody better coming along. It's about somebody else coming along. That's going to bring different sorts of things into your life potentially. Yeah, I think that's what's exciting about dating is that every new relationship is its completely own thing and you get to build your own dynamic and your energy exchange and you can look back and see how it was different from the ones in the past and they're all good and valid. So when it comes to monogamy, non-monogamy, what do you, Justin Randall, former fundamentalist, Pentecostal adjacent Christian, what is it that you want or are doing? Well, that's a very great question because just three to four weeks ago, um, I opened my relationship for, and it was, it's my first open relationship and um, I'm exploring it. (laughs) It's been quite a learning experience and it's been fun and exciting, but also not without its challenges, I would say. Sorry to put you on the spot like that. I've just noticed this thing with you know a lot of uh, you know gay adults who've left Fundy Christian communities will sometimes try to replicate the sorts of relationship dogma that they were taught, just strip the anti-gay hate part of it away, and will want monogamy, will want a sort of traditional relationship in everything but the two dicks sense. Right. And yeah. It's, it's sometimes that's genuinely what people want. Like you do, the, you know, you, you scrutinize w- what you want. You separate that from what you were taught you were supposed to want or only a good person would want. And it's still what you want. And that's perfectly valid. But for a lot of people, a lot of gay people in particular, I think there's sometimes this effort to like, okay, I'm going to do the gay thing, but I'm not going to be like those gay people. I'm going to be the best kind of straight-ish gay person I can be. And maybe that will mollify my family to some extent or God. And it can be really bumpy for gay guys who come out of a Christian conservative tradition who don't look inside, don't figure out what they want and then aren't doing not just, 
you know, are having the sex that they wanted or, you know, dating the kinds of, you know, the, the, the gender that they wanted to date, but aren't having the sorts of relationships that they genuinely want, but the relationship they were told they were supposed to want, which is to marry a doctor <laughs> right. and be monogamous. <laughs> yeah. I've a hundred percent seen that. And even like shaming of promiscuity or shaming of open relationships as if like that makes them more valid because they fall in line with heteronormativity as we're taught it should be. I've totally seen that. And I think I'm kind of rebelling against it. (laughs) Well, that's good. I'm glad you're rebelling against it. Hi, Dan. I'm a woman, bisexual, but mostly been in relationships with men. Um, I have this good friend we met a few years ago and have struck a great friendship. He introduced himself to me as gay, and he was still in the process of coming up once we met. We were in the same group of friends together, so I had him safely in the friend zone. Fast forward a couple of years, surprisingly to me, he comes out as bisexual and says he wants to explore being with women again. I almost thought he was going to say he liked me when he told me this, which was bad timing since I was with someone else. Then my friend has only been on dates with women. Important fact, he has limited social experience, which is very much the opposite of my own experience. He's one of my best friends and we're very intimately close to each other, share a lot of intimate things, and I let him in in ways that I do not other people. He's very affectionate with me and our relationship and his support means a lot to me. I've been thinking about what if this could be more? I'm moderately attracted to him, but I feel like I won't know for sure if there is attraction unless we kiss or do more. I've dated a lot in the past decade and a half and I kept being with the wrong people and selling myself short. A lot of dating disasters all around. This guy and I just get along. I'm aware of his flaws, but I think it would make it work. We're both on this spectrum of queerness. We like the same things. We've had adventures together. We share friends. We're about to spend some time together in a few weeks. And I'm wondering if I should make a move. I feel like if I go for it, this won't be a fling. It will be something with the potential to carry a lot of weight in our lives. I'm also worried about us potentially being sexually incompatible, which would be really hard for me because sex is very important for me. Could this be the best choice or is this a horrible idea that could ruin our friendship? Should I just go for it and see what happens? All right, Justin, you've taken some risks in your life. Should she take this risk? Should she hit on her formerly gay, now bisexually identified friend? I totally think she should. I see no reason why not to. Let the risk happen. You know, you're both adults and you already have some intimacy built up. And I think you can handle whatever the outcome is. And I just simply think it sounds fun. Like I say, go for the fun in it. That's my opinion. I'm torn. I really (laughs) am. Like, I think, you know, he came out to her as bi and has told her that he wants to be with women and has been dating women exclusively and has never hit on her which is a sign that he may not be interested in her in that way, or he may be reluctant to, to put the friendship at risk himself. Uh, but mm. she was in a relationship when he came out as bi and started dating women. And so maybe he thought he didn't, he shouldn't hit on her. And now he's mm. with other women and dating other women. And so he just left that by the side of the road. Like he didn't take that opportunity to, to, to hit on the caller when he first came out and stopped thinking of her in that way. So I, I just think the risk of him not being interested in her in that way is higher than it would be maybe otherwise. 
Like there's some signs mm. pointing to disinterest on his part. So I would just tell the caller to, you know, steal herself for rejection. But we should all brace ourselves for rejection whenever we take a risk and ask somebody out that we're interested in and make ourselves vulnerable in that way. Right. Rejection is always a possibility. Have you ever asked out a friend or hit on a friend or hooked up with a friend? I have. Actually, it was not only a friend, but it was a roommate and a coworker. So I, I checked all three boxes. And did the friendship survive? <laughs> you know, this is going to run counter to the advice I just gave, but the friendship barely survived. It's, it's on life support at the moment. And why is that? One of you caught feelings, the other didn't, or, or what? That's exactly right. I caught feelings. He did not. Um, we even hooked up and everything. And he told me that it felt like he was kissing his brother. Hot. So, I mean, not hot. You're right. I was like, isn't that a good thing? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, it was a struggle. So there is risk there. Yeah, you're all, but the, but there's risk in not making a move also. Like, who knows? And if you don't make the move, there's some alt-universe where you made the move and this was the person that you had a, an LTR and a very successful one with. And if you make the move, it could screw up the friendship. But it, it's always seemed to me that if you want to ask somebody out or make the move, and a move should be verbal. A move is not a lunge. A move is an ask. But if you make that move... And the friendship ends, it's probably a friendship that would have ended anyway because of your frustrated desire that you didn't both want the same things out of the friendship. And that has a way of throwing a friendship off balance over time. You know, if one person is squelching year after year romantic interest in the other that isn't reciprocated, that's probably not a friendship that's going to last forever anyway. And you might as well risk asking the person out. Hmm. So I did the right thing. You did do the right thing. I'm sorry you got <laughs> hurt. But now, but look, that didn't happen. And now you're dating a doctor. That's exactly Which right. is your advice. In a few years. <laughs> right? It took some time. Yeah. But you, then you were free and open for the, the guy with probably a, a steadier income stream potential. Right. True. I like that. And all comedians and actors should be married to doctors. That's my advice for all comedians and actors and writers. Marry a doctor. Good career plan. <laughs> so, Randall, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on social media at at I'm Justin Randall. Also on the We Were Christian Kids podcast with my co-host Calvin Arsenia. Which is terrific. It's got five stars. Uh, it's got a, a large and growing audience. I am a listener and a fan. Uh, and it was uh, really fun to, to finally have an excuse to, to drag you onto my uh, Dirty Smut <laughs> podcast. Yes, this was a blast. Thank you for having me. Hi, Dan. A 29-year-old bisexual woman calling in from the East Coast. I wanted to ask your advice on the most recent installment of my tragicomic adventures in online dating. I started chatting with this guy on Tinder. He seems great, really enjoying the conversation, and he tells me enough information for me to find him on Google. And I see he's a son of a former politician, kind of like a well Knownish person in my area. And then I keep scrolling down in the search results and find that he, in 2011, was charged with breaking into three cars and stealing stuff out of the cars. So he got charged with like a petty larceny and breaking into a vehicle. But anyway, he was completely repentant when he got caught. Don't know if that 
you know, redeems the action. As I say it out loud, it, it seems like this should be an obvious deal breaker. You know, talk about indicator of bad judgment. I mean, people make bad choices when they're young. They do dumb shit. But it's not like he just egged a house. Like, he committed a serious misdemeanor? Like, is that is that a minor felony? I don't know. But anyway, my immediate impulse was like, well, you know, we shouldn't judge people for mistakes that they made a decade ago, you know. I don't know why he did that. You know, people people are redeemable and shouldn't be judged by their past mistakes. Um, and he seems like a genuinely good person. So I don't know. I figure get to know him, see if it's actually something I want to pursue. You know, this might not even be an issue if I don't want to. And then go from there. But am I being naive? Should this epic bad judgment just be like a deal-breaking red flag? Should I bring it up before meeting him and see what he says? Uh, Would love your thoughts on this. Some listeners are probably going to have a problem with the fact that you Googled this guy before your first date with the information that he'd shared with you that led you to his criminal record. I don't have a problem with that. When you take intimate partner violence into consideration, when you take the numbers of women out there who are abused or murdered by their male romantic partners, I think it's wise for a woman to do what you have done here. I think it's common actually for women to Google guys who are thinking about dating and do their screw diligence to protect themselves. Some guys react negatively to this because it hasn't occurred to them because they're not at the same degree of risk that any woman is when she gets into a relationship with any man. So I fully support you Googling this guy. What you found out, though, seems to me to be rather trivial Seems to me that if you went on a few dates with this guy and you got to know him better, that this is the sort of thing that when you start talking about your teen years and what high school was like and the often, for most people, bumpy transition into adulthood, that he would maybe share these facts with you. He didn't harm anyone. I mean, he harmed people. He broke into cars. That's bad. People who have their cars broken into, it's really expensive to get those windows replaced, to get whatever was stolen replaced. It can make a person feel unsafe in their own neighborhood and really violate it. It's not nothing. But he didn't rob people on the street. He didn't hold people up at gunpoint. He didn't physically harm or terrorize anyone. So I think what you went on Google looking for was information about his past that might indicate that dating him was a bad idea because you would be in danger. I don't think you're in danger. You're not a Honda Civic. And I think at some point he's going to tell you about this. If he never tells you about it, if you date him for three months, six months, and it never comes up, you might want to tell him. Like I found this out early when, when I was thinking about dating. I've gotten to know you. Here I am six months later. Obviously, I don't have a problem with it. But can you tell me about it? What happened? And he was probably just a shitty teenage boy doing shitty teenage boy things before his frontal lobe had fully grown in. It's the judgment centers of the brain that come in last. And he probably just had terrible judgment and was acting out. You also say he's the son of a prominent politician. It is often the case that preacher's kids and politician kids to assert their own identity separate from their parents smash shit. A little bit. Sometimes to terrorize their parents. May have been the case here. If you date him and he seems like a good guy and he's not pulling over on the way back from your date to rob a couple of cars on the way back to your apartment, I don't think it's going to be 
a problem. And when that moment comes where you share some of the shitty things you both did in your teen years and childhood, I imagine you won't have misdemeanor charges, you won't have theft charges to share, but you'll probably have one or two things about your teen years that you can share too that might give someone else who is thinking about dating you pause if that was all they knew about you. So maybe have a little bit of empathy and I think you should date this guy and see where it goes. All right, before we get to your response calls for the week, let's read some of this week's tweets. Listener Stephanie Anthony tweeted about the show. Tim Keller, the pastor you mentioned at the top of Savage Lovecast episode 754, is very publicly not one of the good ones, Dan. Major leader in a denomination that refuses women in leadership, calls homosexuality a sin, etc. The welcome stuff is just to get people in the door in order to change them. Women and LGBTQ always second class status. You're right, Stephanie. Turns out Tim Keller, not one of the good ones, one of the baddies. Thank you for pointing that out. The Victoria Ford tweets, a friend fretted that her monogamous marriage was missing something, but she didn't want to open it or end it. I said to her, Dan Savage says we can't expect our partners to be everything for us. Light bulb. She says the advice saved her marriage. Okay, Victoria, how did it save her marriage? She didn't end it, obviously. Marriage saved but did she open it? Inquiring minds want to know. We clearly needed another tweet here, Vicky. And finally, non-Savage Lovecast listener, Twitter rando Doug Collins tweeted, what's the nicest compliment you've ever received? And Savage Lovecast listener Josh Silverman replied, someone told me you're like my own personal Dan Savage. Oh, thank you, Josh. That's the nicest compliment I've received in a while particularly on Twitter. We appreciate everybody who tweeted about the show this week or posted about it to your social media. I see you guys on Instagram. Really appreciate it. Help spread the word about the show. If you want me to read your tweet on next week's Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now our listeners' response calls. Hey, Dan. This is a response call to the lady who is considering going to Vegas for her bachelorette party, Las Vegas local here. You hit the nail on the head. Social distancing and masks aren't great in Vegas, particularly in bars. So if you're really concerned, don't go to Vegas. Hi, Dan. This is a response to your advice to the woman that was annoyed that her dates kept wanting to talk about open relationships. I don't think that she opened a conversation about this because OkCupid forces you to pick an option, monogamous, non-monogamous, or open to either, which I think is what she picked. I have my preference set to non-monogamous only and I've learned to be a bit wary of people who choose the open to either option because often that means that they're not looking for anything serious right now and think that open might be fun for a while, but they want to be monogamous again when they find a partner. If that's their approach, I would probably not want to plan that second date. So just saying we are both into open is not enough information for me. I want to know a bit more. Non-monogamous people usually enjoy talking about it, communicating, so I've not found it a problem bringing it up on first dates. If it is for her, that would be a little bit of a red flag for me. So I don't think that her dates are just excited. I think they are doing their homework to make sure that there are no disappointments later on. She could definitely ask to keep the details for later if it becomes too much. But I also think that the caller needs to allow her and her date to establish upfront what they both mean by being open. Hey, Dan. It's Carrie here from New Zealand. I just wanted to let you know that New Zealand is actually made up of 600 islands, so there is so much room for you and all of the other American gays. Yeah, you're totally welcome here. Just uh, if you could take a COVID test first, that'd be great. 
And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call the Savage Lovecast at 206-302-2064, or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment about this week's show and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 3 starts streaming on April 30th, and it's a great mix kinky, funny, and sexy, dirty short films chosen from the last 16 years of the Hump Film Festival. Go to humpfilmfest.com to watch the amazing trailer, entertaining all by itself. Read about the films and get your tickets at humpfilmfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow the hottest man in Omaha on Twitter at I'm Justin Randall. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk you and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.